0: We are in Zechariah, and I wondered, we come from different places and do different things, and we have different age groups and all of that, but there's one thing that probably most all of us that can walk did first thing this morning, time for true confession. Who looked into the mirror this morning, and how did that go? Yeah. Why do we do it? We still do it. We stumble into the bathroom, turn on the light, that's a mistake, and then we look in the, in the mirror, and what did you see? I have good news for you today. You did not see yourself in the mirror. I can prove it to you. You know how? Just next time you're in front of the mirror, raise your right hand, and that guy in the mirror is raising his or her left hand. Works every time. Guaranteed. All I'm trying to do is mess with your mind a little bit to say our perceptions are, are off, even if something as simple as thinking we're looking at ourselves in the mirror. By the way, what are you doing looking at yourself? So supposed to be worshiping God. But anyway, we make the mistake and do that, but... We're looking at things differently when we look into the prophets. The prophets are seeing. They're called seers for a reason. They're seeing. And I was studying through the prophet Zechariah, which has been a great challenge and a great joy, and I'm going to suggest to you that from whatever Bill brings here today, you walk away and say, man, he didn't give me enough, I didn't get all that, I need to read this prophet again and again, because there's so much packed into The prophet Zechariah. But I was struck with the fact that things don't work chronologically with the prophets. This thing is happening, and then that, and then oh, back to here, and they might be intersecting. And you might try to nail it down. You might try to be dogmatic about it and say, Well, I want an interpretation. This is what that means. And you might even gravitate to a teacher out there who's got the exact interpretation. But I would warn against that because I don't know that Zechariah understands and could define everything he's seeing, but he's seeing. He's seeing into a realm that God knows all about. Our friend, uh, well, I say, call him a friend, C.S. Lewis, the scholar, seems like a friend. He's helped us in so many ways. He calls it the eternal now. We think of past, present, and future. We're on that continuum. Lewis says, well, in eternity, in timelessness, but everything is real and, and it's happening. It's, it's now in God. And I, at the same time I was studying Zechariah, I was reading a classic, a modern classic, that has a sci-fi twist to it. And the twist to it is that the guy, the main character, gets taken to a planet and is shown that there's a fourth dimension to time. Now, that fourth dimension immediately opens up. You know it. That fourth dimension opens up immediate different ways to look at time. He's living in the past, present, future. And, uh, you know, you think about in God, well, that's, that's trivial to say a fourth dimension. How about a fifth? How about a sixth? You know, eternity is just multi-complete, unending, dimensional. So that's what we're doing. That's what we're dealing with as we look into the prophet Zechariah. Well, I also read at the same time as I'm studying uh, a seminary... uh, In my seminary days, a professor named Walt Kaiser wrote an excellent book called uh, Toward an Old Testament Theology. And in looking at the prophets and why the prophets, he said God's future ruler... Was now visible in the line of David. You hear that? God's future ruler is now visible in the line of David. And that now visible captured my little heart and attention. It was like, wait a minute, he's not here yet. He's been promised. And he's somewhere ahead. But the prophet is seeing him somehow, some way. And he's in the line of David, because see, the the kingly line is the the line of David, has been promised. There's several promises in view. In fact, something important to pick up on is that prophecy is much more about promise fulfilled than prediction figured out. But we want to do that. We want to make prophecy something that you look at the predictions and you figure them out. No, what's really going on is a promise has been made and it will be fulfilled. That is the nature of, promises, of, 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 of prophecy. And we find that the promise of God and the prophets was a single unified plan centered on Israel and encompassing the nations. And it's always both. And there's an ultimate fulfillment. There's a big, big picture in view, but there's always intermediate fulfillments. There's critical moments along the way. And realize this. At that time, there was no rival plan. There's no rival theology or philosophy, there's nothing like this that's going on in Israel and Judah and the prophets and what they're seeing, what they're speaking. Nothing. And guess what? There's nothing like this today. You know what we call it? The ultimate plan? We call it the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray again. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to open your word. Help us to see what Zechariah saw. And just be in the wonder of it, even if we don't get it. But we want to get the bigger picture, the longer view. Would you help us now? We give you glory for it, and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right. So, who knows about Zechariah? A little bit about him. Was he an old guy or a young man? You got a picture—an old man, right? Long beard. Well, chapter two says calls him a young man. Young man, you're in. At least he was probably younger than Haggai. Haggai is definitely an older prophet. And Haggai, you heard from Jeremiah, I think, last week. He talked to you about Haggai. Okay. Well, Zechariah is a contemporary. He's coming along about 520 B.C. It's kind of amazing. We know the timing of Zechariah down to this. November, 520 years before Christ. Okay. That's very significant. You know how we throw B.C. around like, ah, oh, B.C. was like old. No, literally... 520 years before Jesus is born, and that's significant because we're going to be talking about Jesus. 520 years in November, welcome to November, the prophet sees what he sees and writes down. And uh, he's a relatively young man, he's a contemporary, that's where I was going, of Haggai. Haggai only preached about two months, and then he was done. You know, they tended to stone the prophets. We're not sure about if, it's, if this is the Zechariah, but in the Gospels it says Zechariah was, was stoned between the porch and the altar of the temple. We don't know actually if that's the same Zechariah, but it could be because this, Jesus, of course, condemned the people for you know, killing the, the messengers that God sent to them. So that was kind of the, the lot of the prophet, this young man, this priest prophet. He's not just a prophet. He is a priest. His name, Zechariah. Well, you know your Hebrew, right? Zachar is to remember, and you hear that ya on the end, that ah ya, what's that, the shortened form of Yahweh, the the very name of God, he revealed himself in the burning bush to Moses, I am, that's Yahweh, so zakar, we say that together, zakar, ya, zakaria, and we'd somehow come up in English with Zechariah, what does it mean again, Yahweh, or God, remembers Well, he was born in captivity. Remember 70 years of captivity for Judah? That generation is just about gone. So who's returning? They've never been here before. They have come back because Cyrus the Persian has released the Judean captives and they are starting their return. And what the priest prophet Zechariah sees and records is second only in breadth to the prophet Isaiah. And that gives you an idea of how much he had to say. It's called, this this little book of 14 chapters is called the Apocalypse of the Old Testament. You know that term? The revelation of Jesus Christ, the, the last book of the Bible and of the New Testament is sometimes called the Apocalypse. And you might think apocalypse means destruction, end, disaster, doomsday, because it's been used that way. It's not. It literally means to take the lid off. That's just what the prophet is doing. He's taking the lid off and looking in, peering into what God sees. And then it really means the uh, revelation, the revelation of God. That's what the word really means. But more than Haggai's admonishments, which the people need... Zechariah brings the same message but with a promise. What is that message? Rebuild the temple. The temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple of Solomon. It's the center of worship of this people. And God wants it rebuilt. And that is the near-term, first-priority message of both Haggai and Zechariah. And then, beyond that, much more to be seen. And so... This book, as complicated as it is, and it is, it's full of complexity, it lays out in a fairly simple outline, and I'll go through those parts with you. First is the call to repentance. You find that in chapter 1. Call to repentance. We've had that here this morning. Same call to the returning Judeans. And then, things get really interesting. We're going to have eight night visions. Not dreams. Maybe you dream at night. He's awake, and he's getting night visions, eight of them. Then, after having somewhat flown over those, we're going to land on the centerpiece, the priest king. It's actually the passage that we read this morning already from chapter six. The priest king, and then take off again and fly over the pastoral burden of the prophet, the pastoral burden, and then the prophetic burden, which is another way of saying oracle. All right, that's the outline. Got it? Call to repentance. What was next? Eight night visions. The priest king, pastoral and prophetic burdens. First, the call to repentance. And feel free, I hope, if you're able to turn in your Bible with me, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. And you know, for time's sake, I won't necessarily read all the portions that I'm turning us to. I'll, I'll highlight one. I'm going to go to Zechariah 1, 3. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You see, God was angry with their fathers. says it right here. That's the generation that lost Judea. So don't be like them is the primary warning. This reflects Moses' warnings way back in Deuteronomy 28, that the people will be put off the land for disobeying. I mean, it's really heavy, really serious stuff. But guess what? There comes the promise of return. And that's one of the missions of the prophets is to remind them and declare that there will be a return. And guess what? They're in it. This is miraculous. They are returning to the land. Do you know that no people have ever done this in the history of the earth? Been just completely banished and taken away, wiped out, and then return to take up their sovereignty again over the land. You know that this people have done it Twice, at least. They've even had partial ones in between. This people is a chosen people. And God will have his way among this people. Return to me, he says to them. And what will he do? I will return to you. All right, that was part one. You, you made it through that. Eight night visions. Are you ready for that, though? Ladies and gentlemen, buckle your seat belts. You don't need to go to Disney or anywhere else this morning. We've got activity, action this is, uh, well, we ask the question, what did the prophet see? Uh, I tell you, he saw pictures. He saw more than pictures. He saw a movie. No, you know what? He, he saw, it was more like this. He saw a trailer for a movie. You know how they do that with trailers? They take pieces of the movie and they chop it together. When you actually get to the actual movie, they say, that didn't happen right after that. That happened back then and there. See, that, that's what a trailer does. It, it just makes you wonder. Well, that's interesting because that's the way the visions are coming. And this is wild. As, as wild as the uh, the visions are, there's actually a structure. Have you heard the term chiastic before? Mm, big word. Chi is the letter. It looks like an X in the, in the Greek, that's, and that's where we get it, a chi shape. That's, that's basically the structure. Uh, the first vision, let's say, is here, and we're going to read around and go to the second one, but then... The first really relates to the eighth. And then maybe we go to the second. What's it going to relate to? The seventh. You see it working around. To where it's going to kind of bring it to the center point and you're going to have what everything is pointing towards. It's it's like a mirror image. You know, I talked about the raise the right hand. You stick your, your hand out here to the right. Well, that guy in the mirror is sticking his hand way out to the left. And so the right corresponds to... The left, it's a mirror image type of structure that's going on. And you know, great literature picked up on this. There's at least three of these structures in Zechariah. And then you'll find, for our readers over here, that you'll find chiastic structures in great literature. So let's go into them. The first is four horses. But the four horses, number one vision, is going to relate to which one? Number eight which is four chariots. Hey, that's an easy fit, right? The four riders on the horses, they're like reporters. They're like reporters that have been sent out to get the news. And you know what they report back? The nations are at ease. That sounds nice, but that's not good. They should not be at ease because they have been against Israel and Judah and God is angry with them. They have evil intent against Israel and God's purpose. Okay, Zoom to the, I won't try to take us through the scripture on this, just stay with me and say, gee, I've got to read this later. Let's zoom over to the eighth vision. What is it? Four chariots. God's judgment on the nations is going out in every direction as typified by the four winds of heaven, north, south, east, west. That's everywhere. God's nation. God's judgment on the nations. Okay, did we survive the, the first and the eighth? Who's ready for the, what, second and the? Seventh, Very good. You're getting the the hang of this here. Number uh, two is four horns. What kind of horns? You know, like a steer's horn? That speaks of power. Powerful thing. You don't want to mess with that. But God's judgment on the nations. Oh, these four horns are Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. We think, because Daniel specified those nations as well. Guess what? Greece and Rome aren't even emper- empires yet. This is before their rise to power. But the prophet, perhaps then, is seeing them. But they're broken off by four craftsmen, kind of like blacksmiths or artisans that, that God raises up to take them out. That relates to number seven, we said. And seven is a really wild one. You know, we just had Halloween, right? Well, this one was just, just in time for Halloween. I mentioned earlier about lifting the lid. Well, in this case, if you lift the real heavy lid on this big basket, you look in and there's a woman who's like the most hideous thing you've ever seen. Like this witchy woman. It should have been a guy for us guys. But in this case, he saw a woman. And and she epitomizes the evil, the sin of the people. And so two women with Stork wings are carrying the basket and flying it off to Babylon where they plant it. The sin will be removed from this camp back to the old one. Ready for three related to six? Three is a measuring line going out over Jerusalem, measuring how far out the city is going to expand. Do you know that city under the right people in it, like it is right now, the Jews, descendants of the Judeans, it just keeps expanding. They call the national bird of Israel the the crane. You know what crane I mean? It's like a measuring line. It's the big uh, construction crane, okay? They're just everywhere. The city just keeps expanding. But here's the problem. Zechariah sees the city's going to expand outside the walls because it's a walled city, and that's the only way you really survived was to be in the walls. But God says, I will be a wall of fire to you. This is where he also refers to this people as the apple of his eye. You ever use that expression? There's several of these expressions that we use. Uh, Anybody ever use that one? Kind of old now, maybe. You know, what's it referred to? The pupil of the eye is the most sensitive part of your body. Most nerve endings are right there. You know, you could have a piece of dust sitting on your arm right now. You probably do, right? It doesn't matter. You don't feel it. If that same piece of dust sits on the pupil of your eye, what will be happening? You won't be paying attention to Zechariah right now, will you? You'll be concerned about yourself. And that incredibly bothersome thing. Why? Because it's all these nerve endings. Well, God says that's what it's like. When you, when you put your finger in the apple of my eye, you will be judged. This is what's going on. Uh, the measuring line. The flying scroll, number six, relates to that. This is a massive scroll. And it's, and it's got wings on it, too. And it's flying. I'm not sure if it has wings. I might have made that up. The women had wings. Anyway, the scroll is flying. And it's kind of like a bomber. It's dropping curses on the evildoers, the ones who are working against the plan of God. Well, this brings us to the center point of the chi structure. It brings us to the cross point. That's a good name. And what is it? Number four and number five. Very good. Joshua, the high priest, is number four. Joshua, the high priest, is being accused by Satan. Satan doesn't actually make an appearance very often in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. He appears a bit more in the New Testament, but he's always working. And in this case, kind of like when Job is getting... uh, uh, Satan comes before God to accuse Job. Well, now Satan is accusing Joshua. And the prophet sees... Uh, 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 Joshua, the prophet sees Joshua with robes on that are dung spattered, you know, like cow manure, splattered all over him. But a moment later, he sees him in beautiful royal robes that are all clean and a turban on his head. There's been a transformation because what do you think God has done with these accusations against his man, Joshua. He's called here a brand plucked from the fire. There's an expression you might have heard, like a brand plucked from the fire, rescued from destruction. And he's representative of the kingdom of priests that God said he would have. Back in Exodus, he says, I will make you a kingdom of priests. It's a sign and a wonder, you know, that the priesthood has even survived the exile. Some have called this return that I'm talking about, the return from Babylon to Judah. A religious return. You know why? It seems that about one in seven of the returnees are priests. This is a very priestly movement that's going on right now. Well, that relates to, that's Joshua, relates to number five, which is a lampstand and two olive trees. Now, the lampstand is not just like, you know, the candle sticking on a pole or something. This is the seven-branched menorah, it's called. It's the symbol of the uh, the Jewish people, really, more than anything. It's the symbol of the of of Jerusalem right now. The Jerusalem flag has the menorah on it. Okay, seven-branched. It was prescribed by God for the temple. It's really the centerpiece of the temple. It always speaks of the light to the nations. God establishes his light among this people and sends the light to the nations. Well, that's what he sees, but it's supplied by the two olive trees. What do olive trees produce? Lots of things, but including olive oil. That's what you burn in the lamp. And so there's the system bringing continuous overflow anointing. That's the term, you know, we use anointing, that term, well, it's the, it's the, it's the flow of oil. That's literally what an anointing is, is, is the oil applied, and it is applied to Joshua the high priest. And Joshua and Zerubbabel. Let's introduce another character for you. Are you staying with me? I know it's hard. But Joshua, his name means salvation. It's the same name as Jesus, Yeshua, or Yoshua, Yehoshua. See, it's the same name, just, just gets rendered a little bit differently. So that's interesting, right? We're making a connection there. What about Zerubbabel? Well, his name means sown in Babylon. Hear that Babel Zerub, sown in Babylon. Well, he's born in Babylon, he's in the kingly line of David. However, there's something curious about him that's not going to happen for him that will happen for Joshua. Let's look at Zechariah 4, 6 and 7. Zechariah 4, 6 and 7. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Have you ever heard that expression, that phrase? Have you maybe used it in prayer or about some situation? It's not by might, now, that refers, in, in context, to military power. Not by might, military might, nor by power. Well, that's referring to political power. You know how much stock we put in, in politics. But happy voting, by the way. Election Day, Tuesday. But, but we don't put all our hope and in, in, in stock in, in who we vote for. We just hope that they'll do a good job and be a public servant. So try to vote for one that will. Okay, now. But it's not by might or power, says the Lord, but by my spirit. The context of this is that Zerubbabel, who's in the priestly line, I'm sorry, the kingly line of David, is not getting crowned as king, but he is carrying the capstone of the temple, which is to be rebuilt. And remember, it's just barely in in rebuild stage right now. But the prophet sees Zerubbabel carrying the capstone to the top of the temple and putting it in place. Now, this is a huge, heavy stone, and it's just him doing it. So how would he get it done, except with, not by might, or not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And then maybe you've heard the expression, grace, grace. Have you ever used that, referring to a major obstacle? Speak grace, grace to it. Well, that's what happens here. He says, with shouts of grace, grace. Let's say that together. Grace, grace. That's what the people are shouting. a Zerubbabel, who's putting the capstone on the temple. Now remember the prophet is seeing this. He's seeing the completion of the temple what God wants. Verse 7 says, "Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it." And so it's an impossibly heavy stone. That means their success in building the temple, and one more expression that pops up in here. Have you ever used this one? Don't despise the day of small things. Never heard that expression? Something starts small, and it's going to grow. But right now, you think, "Oh, is it really? Is it really worth it to plant a church and start small?" Hey, small counts. Don't despise the day of small. Because God sees the bigger picture and is just allowing you to be a part of it. So be a part of it. And it's about the temple in this situation. Now, the priest king is where we land for a moment. 6, 9 to 15 is what was read to us by Joel just a little bit ago. And this is not a vision now. We've popped out of the, uh, the eight night visions. Did you survive that? All right, you've got to go back and read them now you know. But we are seeing a symbolic act anchored in present Reality. See, emissaries from Babylon have arrived with gold and silver sent from the Jewish captives meant for adorning the temple, but God redirects this and says, make a crown. He actually says, and this is what gets a little curious in the passage, make a crowns. It's a plural. And some translators render it crowns, and some translations render it singular crown. Some of them go for like, a special or a complex crown. There's something unique about this. It's many crowns. And we see this picked up in Revelation where we hear crown him with many crowns is where we get that from. On the uh, one called faithful and true on a white horse and on his head many crowns. That's from Revelation 19. But this is where Joshua the priest, instead of Zerubbabel, who's really a governor, he can't be crowned king under Persian rule, but uh, but uh, Zechariah is to crown Joshua the high priest, and that has not been seen before. A priest king, not in the nationhood of Israel and Judah, but it was seen before that, way before that, back in the time of Abraham. Abraham had rescued his nephew Lot, and he returned to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is called Salem at the time, Salem, And he meets somebody who's a priest king. Remember the funny name of that guy? Well, the psalmist in 110 picks it up and says, you shall be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then the Hebrews writer, centuries later, picks it up and says, he's the one, Jesus, is in the order of Melchizedek, the only other priest king but here Joshua. Remember having the same name? Similar role, priest, king. It's all prefigured here in Zechariah. Gets to see it. Then in in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6. Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. He, He shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, who is the one named Branch? And I searched across the scriptures, and I found Branch, the same word, the same idea referred to. Also, the idea of shoot or offshoot, because that's what the word means as well. A branch is an offshoot of a tree, a, a, a shoot uh, out of dry ground. There's several references, and I made a compilation, and I just want you to enter into worship again as you hear the words of my branch compilation. What did the prophet see? He saw my servant. And that's Jesus' suffering rejection in his first coming. He saw the builder of the temple. Not only this temple that's to be built now, but Jesus' own body, which he said, Tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Do you know that became the chief accusation against him at his mock trial? That he said he would tear down the temple, as though the, the big temple, the one that's being built now in, in this time, except it's going to be expanded under Herod. But he didn't say he's going to tear down that temple. He said, tear down this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And that's just what he did. He was speaking prophetically, wasn't he? He was seeing his resurrection, and he spoke of it. But he's the builder of the temple. He's a branch off of King David, and that's the kingly covenant promise. He's a successor to Joshua, high priest, and there the priestly role is enjoined with the kingly one. He's ruler as priest-king from his throne. Here's both offices in one, again, uniquely in the order of Melchizedek, which means my king is righteousness. The root and offspring of David, now there's the planting of Israel that God assures, and there's the root of Jesse, David's father, and there's the grafting in of the nations. Do you remember it's always a unified plan for Israel and the nations, not either or, both, and the Lord our righteousness, this branch is called. Jesus is the Lord. That's more than just saying like he's the boss, that's saying he is Yahweh, he is Yah. Wait, he is the one. He is the one revealed to Moses and he becomes our righteousness and finally he is beautiful and glorious. And the people to that can say, Amen. We touch on the pastoral burden and the prophetic burdens to conclude today. So stay with me. Are we, are we there? What did we find? We found a recall to repentance. We found eight night visions that messes with our mind but shows us that something really big is coming And then we see the priest-king who will fulfill that really big thing. And now, we need some pastoral care at this point. And the prophet actually brings it, you know, from soaring to the future and popping back into the past and then into his present to, to crown somebody. Okay, all this is going on, and the people end up saying, how do we live in this strange new world? This is new to us, to live in the land of our forefathers. We grew up in Babylon. And they have questions of justice and mercy. Fasts and feasts and fellowship is in question. And here in our present, right now, right, we need pastoral guidance. Praise God for our elders, pastors, and uh, and each other who provides pastoral care and guidance. Zechariah 7, 8 to 10 we read, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Did you hear those words? Could it sound like Paul writing to the churches that he's planted and saying, I need you to live this way, brethren? Well, for sure, because Paul quotes from Zechariah as he writes to the churches. Listen to this. These are, this is verses 16 to 17 now, in chapter 8. Chapter 8, 16 to 17, these are the things that you shall do. Speak truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. Well, wouldn't it be just like God to interrupt, interrupt this pastoral moment and in chapter 8 say, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, or I am jealous for... For Zion. It's, the word can be rendered either way and it has it carries a similar meaning. Zechariah 8:2, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy and I am jealous for her with great wrath. You see God is reminding them that while you need to build and care as community, he has something to get done and he is zealous for it. He's more zealous than jealous. You know jealous is a positive in God. Did you know that? It sounds negative. Envy is the negative. That's wanting something that's not yours. Jealousy is wanting what is rightfully yours. And God rightfully has a people and he has a temple that he once built and he says, I'm zealous for Zion. Zion is Jerusalem. And it's the, it's the Jerusalem with the temple. Now, while this finds ultimate fulfillment in the new Jerusalem because that's, of course, the bigger, bigger, bigger picture. There are strong reflections reaching us from that eternal now once again. It's remarkable to stand at the Western Wall. I've gotten to do that. Anybody else been in Jerusalem? Ruthie's been there. And I want you to come with us. Lizzie and I are going in, uh, in May if anybody wants to join us in, uh, in Jerusalem. We'll go to the Western Wall and we'll pray because there's something going on there. There's a call for Mashiach. That's the Messiah. That's the Savior, the Anointed One. And it's amazing to stand there and to have the realization that you only, possibly by the grace of God, know who these many voices are calling for. Come Mashiach, come Messiah, come complete everything. And you know who he is. He's been there before, and he's coming again. And guess who gets a glimpse of him? Zechariah. Zechariah. What did the prophet see? We go to the prophetic burden. He sees Israel's priest king. He sees the ultimate Joshua, Yeshua, salvation, coming to Jerusalem. But how does he see him come? Zechariah 9, 9 to 11. We should read that together. How does he come when this priest king comes? Gentle and lowly. See, not just like a king, not just like a priest, but he comes... As a priest king, rejoice greatly, Zechariah 9, 9 to 11. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. You see, that's an affectionate turn for a Jerusalem under oppression. In this case now, and then, as Zechariah looks ahead to this, the time of the Roman Empire. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then God says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. Wait a minute. Rome conquers Israel and ends up dispersing them all over the globe. They're done for, right? Well, except God says, I will regather you. And he has. That's part of the reason we love going there is to watch what he's doing in this regathering. Okay. But right now he's saying, I'm going to break off your oppressor. Ah, what? remember, not, chrono- not chron- chronological, can't even talk. He's seeing further out when God completes his promised plan. He shall speak peace to the nations. Remember the nations too? Everybody that he's calling and choosing. His rule will be from sea to sea. From the river to the ends of the earth. Okay, over the whole earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant. Wait a minute, blood of my covenant. We could be Reckoning back to the, the sacrifice, and there was no remission of sin without the blood, but could he well even be seeing the, the table that we're about to share, the, the blood of my covenant right there in Jerusalem in, in the priest king's first coming that he's been talking about, mounted on the foal of a donkey. And you, I will set your prisoners, or with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So what did the prophet see? He saw a shepherd, a good shepherd. He also sees that good shepherd martyred. He's a martyred shepherd lord. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Start to see how familiar this sounds to you. He sees a shepherd sold for 30 pieces of silver. That's the slave price. And then that 30 pieces is thrown to the potters in the temple. Judas through his 30 pieces he had received into the potter's field. He sees, the prophet sees the shepherd struck and the sheep scatter. The gospel writers actually quote Zechariah in describing the scattering of the sheep after the sheep, the shepherd is struck. He's alive again then after that. And those lost sheep are gathered, first the disciples and then Israel and then All those among the nations that he has willed. And with the promise in view, what else does he see? And brethren, we're we're getting to the conclusion here. He just keeps seeing things. He can't, can't stop it. He sees another scattering and a regathering. And I think we've made reference to that already. He sees the spirit of grace poured out upon this regathered people. Do you know it's always been by grace? See, Israel has the law and it's to be under the law for, not salvation, for sanctification, to keep set apart, to not be swallowed up and lost in the world. And they're back, and he's pouring out his spirit of grace upon them. And, he, and then what do they do in response? And brethren, this is how personal it gets. They mourn the one whom they have pierced, like one mourns an only son who was lost to you. And now they see. And now they see. You know, the one that they were crying for at the Western Wall, and some of us know who he is. Well, now they see that he is the one they pierced. What did the prophet see? Well, he saw the priest, king, branch, shepherd, lord of hosts, Messiah, his name is Jesus. Do we take for granted that we get to see Jesus and talk about him and pray and to him and worship? Well, of course we do. But what if we had an image like this to remind us? Well, you have it. Read Zechariah. Say that with me again. The priest, king, branch, shepherd, lord of hosts, Messiah. You don't have to say all that. What does he finally do? Get this. He brings the nations against Jerusalem. What? Oh, he's always used the nations in judgment against Jerusalem. Then what does he do? He judges the nations for their evil intent against his people Israel. He knows just how to do that. This is called sovereignty. He then steps down on the Mount of Olives. This is what Zechariah sees. He steps down on the Mount of Olives, which splits underneath his feet, and he goes to battle against those nations, and they're done, and it's all done. And the Lord, my God, will come. This is Zechariah 14, as I conclude. Zechariah 14, verse 5, and then over to 9. Just putting those together. Then the Lord, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. Let's say that together. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. It's creation's finest hour. The creator, redeemer, and now ruling priest-king returns to complete what he had promised so long ago. And brethren, that's why we pray. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prophet Zechariah got to glimpse what's done in heaven and will be done on earth. We're called into that. I don't have like three easy steps for you now to take from this except wonder and bask in the reality of 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 God's eternal now, of the bigger picture, of the completion of all things. Uh, He will be ruler reigning over all the earth. I know there's a new earth and a new Jerusalem. So, hey, figure that out. I don't know. Maybe that's exactly what we're talking about, or maybe he's bringing it all into the earth. I do know this. Ultimately, as I pray and we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying for that new Jerusalem to come and transform the current Jerusalem. And then all things are complete. Let's pray that way as we close. I thank you for listening to me. I hope you're, you're thinking, yep, it's time for me to read Zechariah and pray hard as I do. So Lord, we thank you for your word, for the prophet Zechariah and, and what he saw that we get to uh, glimpse into. We know that we look into a, a mirror dimly, even as uh, Paul said in uh, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, we we're just looking into that glass dimly. We don't see clearly, but we see something. And what we see, Lord, is is, is pretty thrilling. And uh, we know also from that chapter that we know in part. So we don't claim to know all about this, but we know something. And we prophesy in part, even as we reflect what your prophets have said to us. Uh, we know it's in part, but... We know the whole is in your hands and you see it and you are bringing it all in. So we do pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that for each life here, each family, each heart need before you. I pray it would be the coming of your kingdom that, that brings the newness. That it would be your will that's done instead of the, uh, the will of a fallen human or the will of our enemy. Uh, who only knows how to accuse. We stand in the righteousness of God that's in Christ Jesus, and you have make us that, and we thank you for it. We thank you for the blood of the covenant, and we remember now that you have shed your blood. Oh, uh, great shepherd of the sheep, we praise you and thank you for your goodness. and We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.